Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or in fact Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next and everything else in between. My guest today is Roger White, who works for State MP Alastair Henskins. Roger has had a long and distinguished career as a radio journalist in Wagga, Newcastle and Sydney for 2WS, 2GB and 2UE. We chat about his 30 years in radio, representing Australia as a Winter Olympian, surviving a mid-air plane disaster and the role he played in the establishment of the Illawarra Steelers Rugby League Club. Roger is one of the best blokes I've ever worked with, so I hope you really enjoy our chat. Roger White. Thanks very much for joining me on the Media Mates podcast. Ralph, great to see you again. Haven't seen you for a while. It's been a long time. You're currently working for Alistair Hankins. How's that going for you? Yeah, it's great. Um, state MP over at Karingai in on, on North Shore of Sydney. So it's um, kind of similar to you know what we did in radio. A lot of writing and press release stuff, and a bit of speech writing, and dealing with the media and trying to. Uh, you know, get them to, to like your press releases or at least look at them. So, yeah, it's good. And this is the, what, second or third politician you've worked for? Third. I worked for a guy called Andrew Humpherson over on the north side of mid-2000s and I went back to radio and then I went and worked for a guy called Ed Husick, her federal MP um, from Mount Druitt. So uh, that was a year and a half or so and then came back home, closer to home. You've crossed the divide then. Not many people get to do that, work on both with both parties. Yeah. How is that sort of seen from the, I guess, the the real staunch political people? Oh, it is unusual, I guess. I, I guess that, um, you know, if a boss sees that you're working for him or her um, and, you know, I'm reasonably apolitical when it comes to that. So, um, you know, I went to work for, for Labor and then uh, – Mike Baird and the team kindly asked me back, so um, it's it's been good. I really I really enjoyed it. It's um, always changing, and you know the computer skills you've got to pick up and work on websites and stuff like that. You know I, I didn't do before, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. But radio was the career that you had before that—a long career in radio, thirty years. Yeah, is that right? About thirty years, I think. Early nineteen eighties, I began at Two uh, WG at Wagga with uh, Peter Marnie and uh, Damien Ryan and Adam Walters and. A few of those guys are still kicking around Sydney and, and uh, Fiery Marnie's still out in his beloved hometown of Wagga and working away in the in the media still. So, yeah, it's it's been a good 30 years for, for the lot of us. You're known as Dodge. I don't think I've ever called you Roger before, apart from in this interview. <laughs> Where did it come from? I really don't know. I've been Dodge ever since I can remember. I might have been Roger at some stage at school, but I, it just became Dodge. I don't know who called me Dodge, but... It's stuck and I think everyone pretty well calls me Dodge now. <laughs> Roger, Roger when I was reading the news because they didn't like uh, Dodge White as, as, the, as, as the intro <laughs> on any story, it lacked a bit of cred. But um, yeah, to me and friends and my wife and family, it's, uh, it's Dodge. Where were you from originally and how did the path go to Wagga and why radio? I grew up in Wollongong. I did my HSC down in, uh, in, in Dapto. Uh, and then I always had a fascination with journalism and I applied for a job at 2WL in Wollongong. I didn't get that, but um, about two or three days later, I got a phone call from the news director, Peter Hazelwood, said, look, I, you didn't get that job, but I've recommended you to a cadetship 
um, in Wagga at 2WG. Would you like that? So I spoke to Peter Marnie and a couple of days later I was in my little beat up Gemini <laughs> driving down the Hume Highway to, to Wagga and I spent the first couple of years there. So it was a really good grounding. Uh, it was a, it was, it was a great time in radio because in those days you didn't really start your career in, in Metro, in, in Metro, in Sydney. You had to go out and, and do your time in the country. And I think that was a very good grounding for a young journalist to, you know, walk out of the radio station and have to walk around the corner to the fire station and then the police station and the courts and literally do the rounds and, you know, eat eat biscuits and and drink coffee with the ambos and the and the and the fireys and and the coppers. It was a really good grounding, I think. And and it's a shame it doesn't happen to that degree anymore. I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been discussed quite often on this podcast just the shrinking of the the radio industry, whereby now a whole lot of the stuff for I guess news reporters and and journalists are it's downsized and it's just all networked they don't get to experience what you experienced in those early days who were your mentors uh when you look back at that first uh interesting experience to to walk into a country town such as Wagga yeah well Peter Marnie was my first um news director and he was a a really good guy to work for He, he you know, he got his blood out of a stone, but <laughs> I remember the first time I got in big trouble with him. I, um, it was the first time that he trusted me to run the newsroom on a weekend by myself. And I kind of was a bit lazy and I didn't realize that you had to get so many stories up by a certain hour. <laughs> and, uh, I loved my test cricket and I was sitting there one day watching the test cricket and he came up into the newsroom to see how I was going. And we had a makeup board with, you know, Obviously, it wasn't computers in those days. It was typewriters and bits of paper, and yeah. you had a makeup board where you'd put the stories in order of importance as you saw them, and, and sport at the back end. And he came to the makeup board with about twenty minutes to go to my first bullet, and I had next to nothing on the board. And he said, "How's it going?" I said, "Oh, Chapel's just made a hundred, and um, that was probably <laughs> the wrong thing to say because when he walked in, I had my feet up on the desk, and I was engrossed in the cricket. So that was a, a very steep learning curve and a kick up the bum that I needed, I think. But it was uh, they were great years in in country radio, and I'm. You know, as, was, as we've just discussed, it's a shame that there's probably not more of a demand out there or, or ability for people to, to go out in the country and and uh, find their feet before they come into the city. How big was the newsroom then in Wagga? Um, reasonably large. I mean, we had four journos, four full-time journos. There was myself and uh, Damien Ryan, as I said, Adam Walters and, and Peter Marnie. And then when um, Damien moved on. There was a, another guy came in. So for for a country radio station that did local news, yeah, um, it was quite big. I mean, our our news basically went from Griffith to um, Gundagai, and you know, not even down to Albury. Uh, so we had a you know a reasonably large area, but you know, we we dealt in strictly local news on the back of I think it was in Two UEs News in those days. So yeah, and then where did you end up from there? I got my first grading at 2KO in Newcastle right. in maybe 83 or 84 uh, and spent a lot of time in Newcastle. Most of the stations there, 2KO, 2NX, um, 2HD. And then um, Mike Webb began or was seeking the first commercial licence for New FM. Okay. Um, so Newcastle didn't have a commercial radio station or FM station at those right. those times. And uh, he approached me and said, would you like to work in my newsroom? I said, yeah. He said, look, I haven't really got things established yet, so um, the job's yours if, if you want it, but go and kick around and, and um, you know, work wherever you want, and then I'll give you the call up. So I always had a fascination with America since I was a kid. I, as you and I are great sports fans. Yeah. And um, 
I had wanted to go and, you know, ply the trade in America. So I sent uh, some cassette tapes to radio stations in what I thought were comparable markets in America, and I sent one to uh, Colorado Springs in Colorado, which is about 70 miles south of Denver. Yeah. Kind of a similar market or distance to from Gosford to Sydney, if you like. And I got a, a reply a couple of days later and I went over there and worked in a radio station um, in Colorado Springs for six or eight months. Wow. Was, How did they accept the Australian accent? Well, it was about the time of uh, Crocodile Dundee. So the Aussies were like very much in, in the, the flavour of the month, of yeah. in vogue. And um, <laughs> it was funny because while I was there, I actually um, <laughs> went and did some uh, – uh, shopping centre promotions with plates of hot meat pies, party pies, because oh, wow. there was a guy that lived in Colorado Springs who was an Australian that wanted to uh, to try and get meat pies into the onto the plates and ovens of Americans. And so I literally had an Akuba and a Dryzer Bone and um, R.M. Williams, and I used to go after my uh, my stint on radio at breakfast. I'd go um, to shopping centres in uh, in the afternoons and try and sell pies. Oh. <laughs> it was like t- literally taste testing. Oh wow! It was funny. <laughs> so, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, it, it was great. Uh, it was a country radio station, and yep. um, it had a rotate. It was a very well respected uh, country radio station in, in America. So it was had a lot of stars that used to bring out Reba Mar and oh, Reba Mar. Reba, <laughs> <laughs> don't think she ever went there. <laughs> Reba McIntyre, that's a beauty, uh, and and a lot of the the, the big stars. So it was um, so it had a rotation of about five songs. And when I first uh, went there, the general manager said, "You'll um, you'll probably hate country music at the beginning, but you'll be singing it in the car on the way home." And and uh, and that was the way it was after about yeah. three weeks. So it was a really good experience and. Uh, it was uh, one of the um, during one of the federal election campaigns in America. So oh, okay. yeah, we went to the local hall uh, on election day, and probably the following day, I think it was one of the George Bush campaigns, and it was very interesting to to watch how um, American politics worked. It was it was a really interesting time. And then back to Newcastle, was it? Well, it was on the way back from there, Ralph. That uh, I was in a plane that uh, lost its side. Uh, United 811. So my wife and I were coming back from Colorado Springs from that stint to, to go and work at New FM in Newcastle. Yeah. And out of uh, Honolulu at 27,000 feet, the, uh, the plane gave way and lost a, the side out of it and 10 passengers, nine or 10 passengers. So that was on the way home from, from that. So that was a, an interesting, uh, day because the plane managed to get back to Honolulu airport because it was about yeah. an hour out on two engines. And without those nine passengers and the plane, the pilot, the head pilot, the captain made this amazing landing at Honolulu Airport in the middle of the night. And um, we got back and it was three weeks after the Lockerbie bombing and they thought it might have been another one. Right, okay, yeah. Um, because it was an American airline and they quarantined us, the FBI, behind barriers to try and speak to each of us. And being a young journo working at 2WS at the time in Sydney, I jumped the, the barrier and ran through the airport trying to pi- find a payphone. And, right, okay. Um, I had a few guys. Because, of course, you wouldn't have had the mobile. Then, no, right? you didn't. I was literally trying to find a payphone. I had a couple of guys kind of following me and chasing me. Finally, I found the payphone and I rang 2WS. And it must have been a Saturday morning breakfast because uh, the late, great uh, Greg Henricks was on the other end of the phone and 
And I told him, you know, that time in Honolulu, he said, oh, Dodgy, he said, oh, they've just had a plane accident. I said, oh, no, Buffett, I'm, I'm on the plane. <laughs> so he, so uh, he said, let me set up the reel-to-reel. And uh, so he said, oh, Walkley Award, Walkley Award. No, I didn't get one of those, but it was a, it was a, uh, an interesting experience relaying my experience to, to Hendo that day. Well, and- well, can you look back on it 30 years on? I mean, what? Does it evoke memories? Does it what what were you thinking when all of a sudden the yeah. side comes off the plane and there's people getting well, they were sucked out, I would imagine. Like- well, it literally was, I think, Ralph, one or two in the morning. Um, pitch black. Uh, most of us had dozed off. It was probably forty minutes into the flight. Right. At one in the morning, you just get on the plane, just want to go to sleep mm. after being at the beach all day in Honolulu. So we um we didn't know where we were. We could have been halfway to Auckland for that matter, because the flight was Honolulu to Auckland. And uh, we literally didn't know where we were and all of a sudden there were people being dragged down the back of the plane and there was just mist and debris everywhere. And I remember standing up to try and punch a hole because everyone's masks had come down from – oxygen masks had come down yeah. bar my wife's and mine. And I remember an Aussie guy that was sitting behind me, he just took his mask off and said, mate, don't worry. He said that they're not working anyway. And as we found out that all the oxygen tanks had gone out the hole right. uh, into the ocean. So – um. Yeah, so they miraculously miraculously got the plane back onto uh, onto the tarmac in uh, Honolulu, and a couple of days later, we were back on a a plane that worked <laughs> to Auckland and then Sydney and back to radio. So, did you have nightmares or anything no, recurring no, from that? No, I didn't. Um, in fact, I worked on the side for um, in in marketing as well as radio for the Newcastle Falcons, which was the, the NBL team from yep. Newcastle in the in times. So at the end of uh, the Australian season, they went and did a tour of uh, LSU and played Shaquille O'Neal and all those guys. And yeah. so they asked me to come along with them. And that was only about five weeks later. So I was literally on a plane five weeks later flying around America. So that kind of, I think for me, was a, a good tonic um, and, and got me over the any 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 jitter. So, you know, I fly a lot now and still and don't have any problems. One of the big stories when you're in Newcastle was the Newcastle earthquake, mm. obviously, and you were working in radio at that time. Yeah. Uh, and the radio station uh, was... That was New FM. Yeah, hit by it. Yeah, and that was right in the middle of the city. Uh, New FM was one of the streets, I think, just off King Street. And um, I was actually to work the afternoon shift that, that morning and I, I was on the golf course as I was want to do most days and the mm. Newcastle earthquake hit um, while I was on the 18th fairway of the golf course and you could see the ground like a roll in a, in a carpet coming from, from the green straight towards us on the fairway. Wow. Um, it's one of those very few occasions I was on a fairway and, and the roll in the carpet came and went straight up, lifted us up and went beyond us and behind and that was at, um, out at uh, Cockle Creek, Bullaroo, which they later worked out was basically the epicentre of the right, earthquake. Right, of course. So um, everything you'd hear crashing in the clubhouse and in the pro shop and whatever else. So I jumped in the car and went home and my wife said, look, we've, you know, the earthquake's hit here and cracks in the house. And so I jumped in the car uh, and went into the, uh, into the city to go to work and the army was already starting to – you know, block off the city and access and whatever else. So we were yep. in the city. We couldn't get out to go home, but obviously we weren't anyway. And I, I think we spent maybe two or three days um, eating pizzas and drinking Coke in the radio station, just broadcasting every minute of it as it was. And probably only rough 
400 yards from us, if that, maybe 200 metres, was yeah. the the, uh, the workers' club, which had okay. collapsed. Newcastle workers. Yeah, yeah. and then um, we had all the reports of, you know, the pub in Kent Street and whatever else, the awning coming down. And it was just an incredible, incredible time. And I remember it was only a matter of days, I think, after the Clyde Bucker Flats um, bus crash, the one at Kempsey. Yep. So, you know, some of the paramedics and a good mate of mine, Dave Higgins was a paramedic uh, from Newcastle at that time. He was up at that, um, you know, pulling bodies out of the bus. And then as soon as they got home and, you know, they'd been debriefed, boom, the earthquake hit. So it was a, an incredible time for Newcastle. It really was. Um, so you would have been pretty much just operating on adrenaline during was. that time. Um, take us through that. What what sort of emotions were you going? Because, I mean, you would have known a lot of people that would have – uh, were hurt or their their properties were damaged or a whole lot of stuff. And then at the same time, you've got to be able to report on that. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, we had a smallish newsroom, maybe three or four again in 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 those days as far as personnel is concerned. And I think being a, a music station with a bit of news, it, it almost flipped over entirely. It was just almost totally news you know whenever we got news we went to air so the scripts went out the window virtually um the makeup board had you know just handwritten pieces of paper so when you were on on air one of the colleagues would give you a piece of paper and you tried to make the most of it you know <laughs> decipher what they were trying to say so but as a young journo it was a it was an incredible time and a, and a big learning curve because you had to go from being a person that read scripts on air and played carts in those days mm. to just basically being a commentator as best as you could with with um with uh you know people putting bits of paper under you and that happened exactly the same with um with 911 it was I was on that shift that day with Murray Olds who yep. I know you you've interviewed um, Buzzard a few weeks ago and we were in the newsroom doing exactly the same thing you know you were just trying to commentate the whole time on I think it was 2GB at the time from when they were in the city in Sussex yeah. street yeah it must be one of those uh, experiences or experiences like that where tragedy, where you find out very quickly whether you're suited to doing radio. Yeah. Because, okay, anyone, well, not anyone, but people can read a script, but it's that added feature of being able to embellish but without waffling, I guess. It's a really yeah. good skill to have. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I was not great at that. I was, in fact, when I tried to read a script on air, I often found myself ad-libbing because when you're in the editor's desk and a story comes in and if you've written the story, you go and you start to go, oh, I know what this is about. Yeah. And so you go into ad-lib land and then you realise that you have to really time it out. So, um, But uh, there, there's some great examples of, of people. Like I just mentioned um, Murray Olds. Uh, Glenn Daniel was is super at, at conveying that sort of thing. Um, Steve Blander was very good at, at, mm. at segueing between stories when the script wasn't there. So, yeah, there's some very good examples in in this city of of people that are really really good storytellers as well as really good news readers. Now, was it about this time, or was it a little bit later that you you're an Olympian as well? People don't know uh, Winter Olympian, yeah. uh, the luge, luge uh, yeah. was your chosen sport. Uh-huh. Where did the interest in that come from? I was always fascinated by nearly every sport, and I particularly loved the speed sports, the winter sports, um, and I used to see them from when I was a little kid. Channel 9 had the rights, and they'd show a little bit of this and a little bit of that, ski jumping and luge, and I was just always fascinated by luge. 
Um, and I was working at 2WS and they had one of the uh, Olympic Games. It might have been um, Alberville, I think. And straight after that, I contacted the Olympic Committee and they said, oh, yes, we actually have a luge federation. We don't have any athletes, but we have an existing federation. <laughs> so um, I found myself maybe a week later uh, on a plane to Lake Placid in New York where the Americans were based in upstate New York. And a few other Aussies that I'd never met were doing the same thing. And yep. we were housed in the Olympic Training Centre. And uh, when I came home, I got a phone call to say, if you'd like to go back, um, the Americans will take you on and train you. Which So I went to 2WS and said, look, thanks, but I'd like to you know, take a bit of time out. And they kindly um, said, yeah, that's fine. And I, I went over there and um, was adopted by the Americans. Uh, it was a really, really great experience. And, and then I did it for, I guess, 10 years on the World Cup circuit after that. To get to an Olympics, tell me about that. Like that's – we've embraced, I guess, the, the Winter Games a whole lot more than what we would have done back then because Europeans are obviously – and Americans and Canadians are going to dominate a sport where uh, the climate allows them to, to yeah. train, whereas – we're pretty limited in our uh, facilities. Indeed. So with that in mind, knowing that you were pretty much like a, a pioneer in many ways, what was that like? It was great. It, I was um, I got into it very late and I'm, I'm talking probably 25, 26 years of age and the guys that you competed against, including the Americans, they'd be picked out of shopping centre car parks where they turn up to a car park with witches' hats and, and sleds and get kids to come along in towns all over America. It was their selection process and they'd pick these kids wow. at 10 and 11, yeah. So when you were competing, you were competing against guys that had been in the sled since they were, you know, in, in the case of the Germans and the Austrians, you know, four and five, uh, or in the case of some of the Americans and Canadians, you know, 10 and 11. So I was kind of like a very late bloomer and I was never a world beater. I, you know, my Olympic experience was very forgettable and very painful. But, um, uh, but, you know, as time went on by the end of the 10 years, I'd, I'd kind of really, um, you know, learnt a lot and, uh, my times were getting good and some of the, you know, finishings, finish places in races were, were quite acceptable, I think, for the amount of time that, I was in the sport, so yeah, I was fortunate in that I I was able to work, you know, six months or seven months, I guess, in radio and save as much as I possibly could. And then I got over just before the season started and threw myself down the hill as many times as I could on my own coin, trying to catch up, play catch up to the to the to the guys yeah. that have been, you know, training all year round because they're effectively professional athletes. So I um. It, it, it was, uh, I was never going to be a world beater, but it was a, one of the truly great experiences that I had. And I've made so many great friends from the sport, uh, that, you know, I maintain today. So if I go to America, I'll catch up with a few of them. And so what, what year was that? That was 1990? 94. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I finished in maybe the early 2000s or something like that. But yeah, it was, it was quite a, a long time on, on the circuit. So it was, it was very enjoyable. And, and fortunately, um, when I finished, uh, Channel Nine approached me and said, "Would you like to um, commentate um, some of the games?" So I've been fortunate enough since then with either Seven or Nine, or who had the rights to to commentate Luge Bob and, and now Skeleton uh, for the for the uh, for the Winter Olympics. I was going to say that you being the only one that was competing in the sport, I mean, they uh, obviously needed the the expert, and you were it pretty much. Yeah, we had a girl from Gordon, which is the next suburb to where we are right, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, she followed me, uh, Hannah Campbell Peg, and then there's a new one that um, uh, that 
that competed in the last Olympics, a young guy from from Townsville. So yeah, so it's been good that um, you know at each of the the Winter Olympics, there's been some Aussie representation, which has been which has been terrific. How did you find going back and commentating and parting uh, imparting your knowledge to the the viewers back home when you consider that you know I don't want to be disrespectful, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of interest in the the Winter Olympics, even though we were televising it. Yeah, well, it was about the time that Australians started to win medals. I remember the short track speed skating team won there, was it bronze, I think, and then yeah. and Stephen Bradbury and then we had Alyssa Camplin and, you know, those coming through. That So each of those subsequent Olympics, there was always a medal. So the Australian Olympic Committee saw the value in making the teams even bigger and putting more money into it, which is fantastic. And, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think there are a lot more people now that watched the Winter Olympics than they there would have been in the in the 80s and early 90s yeah. based on the success of the Australian team. Um, yeah, so it was really fun commentating and where I was lucky is that I think the, the, the games that I did compete at, well, the following games I was able to commentate and a lot of the guys for several Olympics after were guys that I used to muck around with and, and compete against and right. whatever else. So I knew them, they knew me and, you know, you could go up to them and approach them at any time on a track or any of the coaches and you knew them and they gave you that time. So I think it was fortunate that I wasn't someone that had kind of come from the outside and yeah. and they not knew. So, you know, a lot of them were mates that you could ask advice of or get an interview for or, or whatever. So it was, it was interesting knowing that, you know, when a guy left the handles at the start of the run, you actually knew a lot about them and, and, and their style and whatever. So it was good. Yeah. When you told your friends and family that you were going to hop in a sled and slide down a mountain for like for fun, what did they say to you? Did they say you were mad or what? Uh, my parents did think I was mad and they didn't really want much to do with it and never really have had much to do with it. Uh, and my wife, uh, uh, Linda, at the time just thought, no, whatever, if you need to do it, go and do it. So, mm. yeah, so um, I just I just did and, and I kept finding myself – Going back each season, even if it was an Olympic year, it wasn't an Olympic year. I, I just would, would knock on the Steve Blander's door or whomever was the editor and say, "Look, um, hi, can I can I go away and come back again?" And and I was very lucky that they um they allowed me that, and then I'd come back and just resume radio. So it was it was it was a nice uh, right. Nice so thing for to a do. decade, you were pretty much like six months here, six months there, yeah. casual radio guy. Yeah. <laughs> Casual Olympian guy. Yeah. Uh, it must have been quite a time. Yeah, it it, um, it smashed the bank balance. <laughs> Let me I tell you that. I just burnt the credit cards and probably am almost still catching up. But it was a, it was an experience now that I'm so glad I did. Um, I just love sport as you do, and it was. Yeah, had I not gone back the next year, I, it, you know, I mightn't have had so many great stories to tell. So you know, I can tell my. My young kids now, you know that you know if they if they want to do something like that, I'm all for it. Well, see, that's the thing out. is like that's something that uh, that nobody can take away from you. You've represented your country, and that's something that you must be ultimately very proud of. Yeah, I am. As I said, I was never never a world beater. In fact, you know, I made up the bottom half of the field nearly all the time, um, right till when I finished. But what was very nice was the top guys in the sport the Germans and the Americans and the Italians, they knew the sacrifice that you made financially because they were basically looked after. Yep. They were selected in a team and paid for, like any like a, our cricket team, I guess. Um, and they knew that you were there on your coin. 
and you were <laughs> leaving your skin on the on the walls on the way down and you know smashing yourself up regularly until you got to a certain level of competency and those guys would very freely give you information and you know once you came back to the to the warm up hut they'd say try this line and the coaches were the same and you know I I learnt very quickly some 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 good skills I think on the back of their generosity which was which is really terrific they they knew that you were there uh on on your own back and, and um and and on your own finances and they were very generous with their time and, and their advice. You mentioned the the commentary part. Did you look to go into coaching younger guys no. coming through at all? No. Um I was actually involved with the Federation. So we continued the Australian Luge Federation and the girls, um Karen Flynn and, and Hannah that that followed me um, they were more involved in the selection process than are today. They, they've been really good in, in um, getting kids from all over Australia and taking them right. to, to the, the the institute at Narrabeen across a weekend and, and selecting those. I've I've been in a very small part uh, a part of that, you know, going and helping them out with the wheel sleds and whatever else. But yeah, I've kind of don't have a great deal at all to do with uh, with the sport anymore. Outside of you know, if they ask me to commentate, I'll I'll certainly put my twenty cents worth in. So Newcastle then. WS, what was it like getting a start in that first Sydney radio station, uh, which, you know, was an institution in, in Sydney's West uh, back in those days where it was housed at Seven Hills? I think, mate, it was part of the progression that you want to make professionally as a as a journo. I mean, I, I started at Wagga, went to Newcastle, spent time in Newcastle, went to America, came back to Newcastle. And then Greg Henricks was working, uh, I think he was the deputy news director to Steve Blander at um, WS, and he said, look, come down here. So I moved to uh, what was the Pizza Hut at um, at Seven Hills. The, the, the radio station was, you know, fondly regarded as the Pizza Hut. It was kind of like this mm. split-level place that looked like one. And um, you know, I spent a few years there before they um, they moved to North Ride, uh, which you know well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, but that, that was a, a great time. I, I still say that Two WS was probably one of the greatest radio stations I ever worked with. It was a Friday afternoon barbecues, and you know the fridge was open. You know, it was a very family oriented radio station, and I think um, I think they maintain some of that today. I haven't been there for a while, but it was a, a really really good place. And thing I liked about WS, it was very it was basically a music format with a very heavy concentration on news. Yeah, so um, you know a lot of the Journos, really good journos, would come through WS and have a really good grounding. Who were the people that you work with there? You mentioned Steve Blander, you mentioned Greg Hendricks. Uh, yeah. Who were some of the other guys and girls that were coming through at that stage that uh, um, had progressed to, there was to other things? Wendy, Wendy George, I think, was there. Uh, as I said, Blander, Hendricks. I think Jeff Field might have even been there at one stage yeah, at, yeah, at, at so, WS. Yeah. yeah. It's a long time ago now, but uh, it was there were some really good, uh, really good journos. So, what did you learn then from the? Okay, you were working in regional radio uh, to come to Sydney. What were the main differences, I guess, from working out there to working in a capital city? And um, I guess there would have been a whole lot more urgency. You would have had a bigger staff, obviously. So that would have been a, one of the main differences. Yeah, I think you got sent to a lot more diverse stories. Um, I had a little, I guess, a sporting bent where I tried to specialise as best as I could in sport. But yeah. when you get into a, a big organisation like WS, you um, you must try and master pretty well everything from the courts to you know the the, the police rounds. Jason Morrison um, came to us as a as a young cadet, and he mm. basically took on the police rounds very early, and that was his bent. 
and he moved on from there. Um, but as a journo, you had to have pretty fair general knowledge. You needed to know your sport. You needed to know your, your politics. You needed to know the police rounds and, and the courts and everything that was happening each day, whereas sometimes in in um, in bigger organisations, I, I guess you could specialise a little bit more. Was that one of your strengths, the fact that you were able to be pretty much an all-rounder? A lot of people have their field of interest and that's what they stick to. So whether they're a police reporter or a state parliament reporter or a sports reporter, do you feel as though that was an advantage for you, the fact that you could pretty much slot into anything? Yeah, I think it goes back to my high school days, Ralph. I I was always very interested in knowing from from a whole lot of different fields, so sport and, and and general knowledge. And that first interview that I mentioned earlier about um, going for that job, the cadetship at 2WL, the news director had a 20-question general knowledge test, and I think I got 19 of 20. It was like, who's the, the mayor of, of Wollongong and and sports questions and whatever else, and, and I think he was surprised, and I, I was certainly surprised that I actually knew that stuff. Yeah, and I think it just went back to having a, a general knowledge of of things. And I used would to, it happen today? Would people get th- put through a test like that? I don't know, and it probably would be a good idea for some editors to go, "Hey, what do you know about this?" Just to weed out whether someone actually knows what's what's going on around them. Um, I, I used to read the newspapers a little bit, and um, in, in fact, it was. One of the reasons that I was one day I was playing golf and it was too wet and didn't get to play, and I opened up the back of a newspaper and they were looking to get a team in the uh, Illawarra, put a team in the Sydney Rugby League competition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I went, oh yeah. So I'll I'll um, I'll name what I thought would be a good name for the team and put a logo in. It was the Illawarra Steelers, and they named the the team after that. So Did we you got get a, kickbacks from that. Yeah, we got to, the family got a nice old trip to Fiji. And um, yeah, oh, nice. and uh, seventeen years of following the Steelers until they got folded up into uh, into the Dragons. Yeah. But it was uh, yeah, that was the thing. I, I used to whenever I could as a kid. I think I had this fascination for sucking up knowledge, and I used to read the papers whenever I could. Generally from from the from the back first <laughs> before the front. You now in your uh, more advanced years, you seem to enjoy <laughs> the fact that newspapers, TV, radio. They seem to drop off in accuracy, whereas, and I can speak on my own uh, experience here, when I started, that was the number one rule. You had to be accurate with everything that you did and now with the fast dissemination of, of news and, and everything that goes along with that, seems to be lost in the wash. Yeah, um, I can't remember who it was that told me as an editor when I was a, a, a younger journo he said, write a story, close it down, open it up, have a look, close it down, open it up and have another look just to try and check. You know, if you've got time, check and check again. And sadly, I, I remember going through newspapers as a, as a young journo and you could almost go through an entire newspaper and not find a, gra- a grammatical error. And now they're awash with them, as you said. And it's kind of sad and I think it gets down to a lot of what you were talking about earlier, that there are just not enough journos around or editors or subbies to check anymore. And those that there are are very young, have just been thrown in the deep end. And I think it's much to do also with the the onset of of online journalism. Once yeah. upon a time, there might have been one or two editions of a newspaper and you are able to check your copy. But now if a young journo is sent out in the road, there's an expectation that 
you know, that you'll beat news or you'll beat Fairfax to whatever you're doing, filing from on the road and you send in your copy and someone goes, yep, we'll put it up and, and not really checking it. And I'm, I'm, it's funny that you say that about, you know, me putting that on Facebook or whatever, but it just happened one day and I was amused and bemused, I guess, by, by one of them. So I put it up and now I get people from all over the world, America, the UK, sending me stuff on Facebook saying, oh, here's for your, here's for your posts. You know, they're picking things up for me from all over the world and saying, here's one, put it on. So yeah. it's just kind of oh, created a your monster. Own bloody media watch business <laughs> the way that you're going. But, um, I mean, it's, it's so true. I mean, standards seem to have slipped. And I mean, I really don't want to go down this whole path of, you know, back in my day, but it's so true. And the people that I've sort of already spoken to on this podcast pretty much reflect that, that the, the standard has slipped um, as a trade-off for speed, which is just unfortunate. One thing I will say about you when it comes to that, you were our paths first crossed when we were working for 2GB in the early 2000s. You're always very good with younger people and always very good and attentive to work experience kids. Well, is that you. something that you were very conscious of and you wanted to help people along the way? Thanks, mate. That's nice of you to say. I, I um, tried to always, no matter how long I'd been in the game, always think that I was new. And if someone was new, I wanted them to have someone that can say, hey, you know, this might be a, a good way to go. Yeah. Um, I always, I remember when I was at 2W, uh, sorry, 2WG as a cadet. 2WG kindly sent me to the mega radio station that was 2UE at the time. It was by far the number one newsroom. It had yeah. maybe 30 journos. And for a month, they put me up in a hotel in Sydney and I was able to learn off the absolute household names of radio. And they gave me their time and they were really generous. And I remember being taken by Rob Allender to the court rounds and, and Crittenden to something else. And, you know, I was on the road with guys that I looked up to or, you know, when I was turning my radio on at, at Wagga. And I I didn't forget that. And I don't know why it was, but when I was in newsrooms, I, I don't know whether it was someone gave me these younger journos to, to try and help or whether I just gravitated towards them. Mm. But it was it was really fun for me to to watch them progress and um and to see someone learn, and particularly, I remember Ralph. We, we'd go on the road to stories, and I'd often get uni students or interns for a week or two on work experience, basically. Yeah. And you take them to to stories, and you know, you'd be going out in the cab or in the car and saying, "How different is this to what you're learning in the lecture room?" And they say, "It's just completely different. It's chalk and cheese." And it used to be good to see these people come through, get in the industry, and learn and learn and learn. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to see young people. And that's what I was saying to you before. It's, it's regrettable now that some journos in, in very small newsrooms are thrown in the deep end without the proper tuition or, 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 or mentoring that, that you and I had. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a numbers game now. I think where, and I know you've spoken in, in the other podcast to this about how newsrooms are shrinking. And journos being put on the road with an expectation that they've got to file straight away, and that's you can't have those ingredients, and then not have mistakes, and that's actually why I think I go to Facebook a lot with these is trying to not so much shame journos into getting it right, but just saying, hey, um, this is what's happened, get it fixed. And I know when I do that, 
you know, mates of mine in certain of the, the print areas get onto the journal who's, you know, written it incorrectly yeah. to, and all of a sudden within five minutes it's fixed. It's got nothing to do with me. It's just that someone finally has said, hey, that, that needs to be fixed. Let's, let's get that done now. So is the reduction in numbers, I guess, not allowing the journalists to have the time to put into mentoring the younger ones coming through because they're so busy and they're, they might be by themselves. So to have somebody there and teach them an, on the run while you're trying to produce a high-quality bulletin or voicer or whatever yeah. the case may be, is that how it sort of panned out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at some of the larger radio stations in Sydney that used to have thir- you know 30 journos, I've actually sat at the editor's desk with a journo on the road and that's about it. And that's the God's honest truth. I remember sitting in a newsroom at an editor's desk about to read a story and I have not got one single journo on any panel <laughs> in the newsroom around me. And that same newsroom, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a cadet being mentored by these great journos, they'd actually file a story, come back into the newsroom and physically couldn't get into the newsroom because there were too many journos in the newsroom to file their story. Mm. And they mightn't even get their story up for hours and hours because there was just so much content and so many journos and senior journos too. And that's, yeah, yeah. and to your point, that, that's right. I, I think there just isn't enough time now for the senior journos to devote to 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 those coming through. It's funny you mentioned that. I had a, a beer probably about 12 months ago with James Boyce and he mentioned you when he first started at 2GB and you might have been the afternoon editor at that stage, I think I was reading sport, and he said he'd never forget. He went out on some story and forgot to put audio in his voicer Mm -hmm. because he just did a straight voicer and you brought him aside and took him aside and spoke to him and said, mate, that's not good enough. I expect better from you. And he said that he's never forgotten that and he's always tried to – remember to do the most that he could. So I think you just being able to do it in your style and tell somebody had a real impact on someone's career where I don't think that happens anymore. Yeah. I um, I actually think I, <laughs> I remember that afternoon <laughs> because I wasn't real comfortable with yelling at people, but I think I, I might have with old Jimmy that day. But yeah, I'm glad he, you know, he remembers it and you know, he turned out to be a fine journalist and went on to the political field and yeah, so that's 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 good. How did you find covering politics? You first did it, I think, for two UE. You had it as a full round uh, when yeah. you moved across there. So you went you went from two GB. You were there for a while, then got a a gig. I think dipped out of radio for a bit, and then as it, as it turns out, radio's what <laughs> you keep coming back to. Sucks you back in, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. What's it like covering around like state politics? It was really good. Um, you would go. It was something you could really get your teeth into and if you knew that you were going to be given time to invest in that round and that round only, it was perfect. Unfortunately, it got back to the point again where even though it was your designated round, sometimes something would happen, you know, there'd be a fire in a building or, um, you know, one of the Cronulla players, you know, was in a judiciary hearing or, or you know, the, the whole, in, in the later days, the the, the supplement scandal, all that sort of stuff. So they would, you know, a, a player or the coaches might have been seen in a hotel room. You'd have to go and stake that out. So, I mean, you had to split your time. And again, it was in the latter stages, it got to the stage where you couldn't specialise as best as you wanted to. Mm. Um, you had to, you know, go down to a court story or a court appearance or, or somewhere. So you had to, they basically used that office as a bureau for, you know, 
been doing centrally everything. located <laughs> yeah. to run off to whatever yeah. story needed at the time. Yeah. But I'd imagine something like that, it's probably changed over the years from when you first started, whereby you had to forge contacts with politicians and political advisors and chiefs of staffs yep. and all of those things, whereas now it's all laid out in front of you and you're now on the opposite side of thing where you're controlling the message of the politician. Indeed. So it's something that has gone down the path of very, like I said, stage managed performances by not only politicians, but sports people and anyone that's uh, involved in, in public life. It's sure. the easy way to sort of, I guess, kill the story, hold a big, massive all-in press conference, and then you're done. I think, um, Ralph, that is largely why a lot of the press sex now are externos that appeared in you know TV or, or the papers or on TV is because you know that the press galleries, whether it be federal or state, um, just don't suffer idiots. And if you try and sell them a message that they know is, is, is bullshit, that they'll tell you it's bullshit. So, um, you, you, there's a certain craft in, in working as a, as a press sex selling a story or telling a story that you know is palatable to them because, you know, you, you can't slip too much by a journo in the press gallery because most of the guys in the press gallery, that is their gig, particularly the, the press guys. Um, that's all they do, and they've got the contacts, and they know, you know, where a story's at. We've spoken about the standards of journalism. You're a published author, also. You had a, a book out as well that was yeah. launched by the premier at the time. What was the reasoning behind that? Very simply, as a supplement to what I was talking about before about helping young journos, particularly those that were coming out of university, because I was finding that we were taking on cadets out of university or some of the colleges, media colleges that what they were being taught in the classroom, in the lecture room, was vastly different to their experience when they were on the road and they had to learn quickly. So I wanted to put out a, a guide, a media guide, if you like, of of how it was best to or you know, possibly best to, to write a story, how you developed a story. And one of the examples I I had a, a bus crash down a mountain. It was you know it was a fictitious story, but it was how you develop that across the hours, particularly in radio. Um, without repeating yourself and, and how you can continue the story and, and, and colour the story with, with facts. Did you get much feedback from that from students? Yeah, I did um, and continue to. I wish I'd kind of done another run. It might, it might, have been, <laughs> might be time to update it, I guess. But one of the, the, the nice things was the Rural Fire Service actually took as many copies as I had um, as their media guide for people dealing with the media. Yeah. And then um, – the New South Wales Fire Brigade, so there's obviously a bit of rivalry between the two bodies. Yeah. Um, the Commissioner of New South Fire, Fire Brigade said, um, this is a good book. Um, can I have all your remaining copies? So I, I, I got cleaned out by the, the two fire services, and, and um, I think that's been used to some degree um, by the, the, the fire inspectors and whatever else as a bit of a guide as to how to, to deal with the media. Um, you know, I, I can't stand it when – you know, the, the police stand up there and they go, a deceased person, and, you know, it's like that yes. that polished speak that they're told to say and it just doesn't sound right. I mean, we don't no. speak like that in normal in normal life. So um, I hopeful, well, I'm hopeful that that kind of 
gets out of gets out of their speech patterns and and more back to to, to normal speak how you and I would speak again that's part of the the dying art it's just like well you're not getting taught the conversational way of saying it and I listen to radio now and there's a whole lot of past tense where it's should be present tense and all of these things that you get taught when you come through and that whole fast food news now where yep. We're more interested in celebrity than we are in things that matter to the community. Uh, seems to be a, a, a great, a great shame for what was like once a, a great industry. I mean, for you and I, it's it was radio, and radio was my great love. I, I did a bit of writing on the side uh, for newspapers, but for me, for thirty odd years, it was radio, and that was my great love. And and I just I keep going back to 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 radio you know, after having stints here, there and everywhere because I just loved radio. Um, I've probably, you know, I'm done with that now. <laughs> I'm 50 yeah. years old, but I just love journalism. I just think it's one of the great industries. Murray Old said to me, you're getting paid to tell a story every yeah, day. Indeed. And, well, in the case of a news bulletin, several stories. Indeed. And quite often you're first with the, the information and you get to tell the rest of that listening audience. And I, I still think while all the these other splintered, and fragmentation parts like your podcasts and like everything like that, there'll still be a place for that great piece of radio where you've got that immediacy where you can't deliver that anywhere else. I think with uh, longevity too comes a degree of respect. So when you get to know a contact, so whether if you're on the police rounds, it's senior police and you know, if in the political world you get to know the premier and opposition leader and ministers and whatever else, and I think the the, the longer you stay in a in a job and gain the respect of the subjects that you deal with. I think more story opportunities come along your way, and you know maybe tip offs or or whatever else. And I think that's one of the real great things about this industry is that the longer you are in it, um, and and you do the right thing by people and don't burn them, but tell an honest story. I think um, good good things come your way. Having seen your struggles with news boss. <laughs> how, how, have you, how have you coped with the uh, evolving technology? I was just talking to you before we went on air about how we now, like my boss, as of last week, has a website, alistairhenskins.com.au, and um, I now manage that, and I'm able to put in photos and crop photos and download stuff and upload stuff. Because News Boss scared you when, when it, you first laid eyes on it. I, was, I remember <laughs> when, it, when we first went from typewriters to computers, I could turn on the computer and that was it. Mm-hmm. I remember um, one of our ex-colleagues, Corinne McKay, when we were at WS, it was a, an entirely new system altogether and I'd come off working somewhere else and I went back to WS and I just was absolutely horrified by it. And I remember I was reading the news for um, some of the Queensland stations. So, you know, we were kind of uh, doing it out of Sydney for yeah. for points, which is another problem in itself. And I remember crashing <laughs> the computer. I remember crashing the computer and I had no idea what I'd done. And Corinne came in and like pressed a couple of buttons and, you know, got things going again. But um, it, it scared the hell out of me because I was old school <laughs> and I had to learn very quickly. And it's amazing in the last probably two years – of being a press sec in Canberra and and also here in in New South Wales, I've learnt nine thousand times more about computers and running a computer than I ever knew when I when I was running a, a newsroom. Well, you know, I did mention beforehand. I heard something the other day about how eighty percent of jobs in the future haven't been created yet. So it's a case of you have to adapt yep. or you get left behind. Yeah, fortunately, um. I have a stepson who's 15 and an absolute freak on computers and he just comes along and just shows me stuff that I go and 
okay. And you know, he's obviously a very good teacher because he, he has me doing it right pretty quickly. Whereas in the old days, I used to just be a dribbling mess. I remember many times going into the newsroom, firing up the news boss and just the screen would be frozen. So I actually had to read the news out of my head. And it was only fortunate that I was the editor that I kind of knew that Print the your scripts dodge. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> and I didn't. And sometimes I'd go in there and the computer was frozen and the pips would go and I'd go, right, eh? So I just have to literally ad lib a bulletin out of my head, trying to remember which sequence I had them in on the screen at the editor's desk. Extraordinary. It's just heart attack material. Oh, isn't it just that's well, why you've I'm been very great. generous with your time today. We'll wrap things up in a minute, but Lastly, we've looked at a whole range of issues today, but I'd like to get some advice from you from for young journos coming through. You, As I said before, you give a lot of your time or you used to give a lot of your time to the work experience kids and what would you pass on uh, to them for somebody that's looking to, to get a start in radio? Be accurate, be enthusiastic. And I'm just going to say, there's a, there's a guy that you know very well and I know, Brett Zab. Zabi used to come into the newsroom on weekends and his own time, he, he, he I'm, I'm sure he had a mattress somewhere and he, and he lived at the radio station. On the tenth floor. Yeah, he, he, he used to come in weekend after weekend after weekend until he got a job, and he was a fine young journo when, when, when he took the task on, and that's why I say be enthusiastic. I remember Georgie Gardner being at a, um, a college in Western Australia, and she and Michelle Alexandrovics were at, what was it, Whopper, and they had graduated and they used to ring us in Newcastle every second day. One would ring one day, one would ring the next looking for a job. And I happened to be at my mate's wedding in Perth and the general manager said to me on the phone, oh, you've got to find yourself a cadet journalist. And I was in Perth and I interviewed Georgie and she came on board with us as a cadet journalist in uh, Newcastle. I think it was 2NX in those days. And it was only because she rang every day or every second day pestering newsrooms for a job that she came front of mind. So just stay really enthusiastic. Don't get despondent if you get knocked back. Just keep knocking on doors, knocking on doors and learn and offer your time free of charge to go into a newsroom and sit there and watch and watch and watch. And if you show persistence and you show a a level of skill, someone will give you a job when there's one for you. Roger White, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralph, and great to see you again and thanks for asking me. There he is, Roger White, media advisor to state MP Alastair Henskins. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Roger, please send us a tweet at MediaMatesAU. Dodge doesn't have his own Twitter account. As you've heard, he battles a bit with technology. You can also check out our Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or a view. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.